Greetings, Initiates, and welcome back to another lesson of the Codex. In this episode, we're going to be segueing away from Assassin's Creed 1, and now we are entirely on Assassin's Creed 2. Woo! Woo! So, like I mentioned in our last episode, that Assassin's Creed 2 is quite a big game. There's quite a bit of development. So I hope you all brought your pens and papers like I asked last time. Oswey, did you bring your pen and paper? Always. Perfect. So to kind of start things off, we're going to go straight into the gameplay stuff. We're going to talk about all the present day sequences within Assassin's Creed 2 because there's a couple more than there are in Assassin's Creed 1 in regards to like substantial gameplay, not just like walking in and out of an animus. Um, so to the game actually itself starts off in the present day. And it Desert- starts immediately, like right when Assassin's Creed 1 ends. It's it's like the exact same moment. Exactly. It picks off exactly where Assassin's Creed 1 left off. There's no time lapse or, or anything like that, which is really great. Yeah. Also, another nice little key feature is that they kind of do this like... I don't even know what you would call this. Like I know they kind of do it in movies where they're like... They give a brief recap of what happened in the first game. And then like at the very end, they're like, okay, and my name is Desmond Miles and here's my story. Like a montage. Yeah. Yeah. And so Desmond wakes up at Abstergo again. Lucy comes into his room, tells him to get up. They're leaving and her outfit's changed. She's got a little bit of blood splatter on her, on her shirt, but you don't really pay attention to that right now. Um, but she tells you to get into the Animus really quickly because she needs something. So you get into the Animus. She's like doing some sci-fi stuff where she's like trying to sequence, find a common ancestor between Desmond and Subject 16. She finds one, downloads it, and then removes a, a component from the Animus. And then they both proceed to leave. And then this falls into the whole sneaking around Abstergo to, to get out. And Desmond then sees that Abstergo has a lot of animus animuses animi whatever you want to call it whatever the plural version of it is yeah he notices that abstergo has a bunch of these machines and this is where desmond kind of learns a little bit more the fact that he has picked up eagle vision from altair um this is kind of most noted when he they're trying to figure out a common a keypad combination to access a, a door or an elevator i can't remember wh- which one it is and lucy doesn't have the passcode but then desmond activates his eagle vision finds the right combo and then after battling some guards knocking them all out and stuff lucy and desmond escape from abstergo and lucy drives desmond to this warehouse and it's in this warehouse that we meet the first group if you can even really call it a technical group of assassins, which is really just Sean and Rebecca. And we'll get into them a little bit later, but they kind of explain of how things are going, where things are at. And Lucy says, okay, Desmond, well, we need you to join us and and fight for us. And Desmond's just like, all right, I'm in. And to do that, they're going to train him by putting him back in the animus. And he's going to go through and live through another ancestor and pick up on his training, uh, all his training and hopes that the bleeding effect will then take those abilities and implant it into Desmond. So that's kind of like the first big segment of present day stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And then it then segues into the animus, and then, you know, the good majority of your gameplay is there. However, about like half, maybe a third, halfway, thirds, one of the two, into the game, you get pulled out of the animus, and you have to test your abilities by setting up, like, by setting up the warehouse defense system or the alarm system. So Lucy takes you down to the lower levels of the warehouse and says, okay, I'm not going to tell you how to get to all these, you know, activation panels, but you need to figure it out. And then this is just how you test your abilities, you know, so the, the climbing, the agility, all that stuff. So you go through a little obstacle course, activating these panels, and um, it's just kind of highlighting the, the bleeding effect and how it can be used for these great purposes but then you see once they're done and Desmond heads up to go to bed that there's also other side effects like um, Desmond's starting to see apparitions or ghosts from people that are from the time period or the Renaissance, I should say, as he's coming by. Um, because now he, the two realities of Ezio and Desmond are kind of overlapping with each other. And mm-hmm. so this is where like he kind of is having some headaches and, and stuff like that from that point on he sort of he goes to bed but then he experiences another memory of Altair like he manages to access a memory of Altair without being in the animus yep. which is something that is very uniquely uh, I shouldn't even say uniquely I should say extremely rare and I believe they mentioned it at some point in the game where oh, you know, if you were skilled enough, you could do it. Now, if you could also control it, then, you know, you won't need the animus. Yeah, it was Sean who who goes into detail and says, you know, that there's when they're explaining the bleeding effect to him about how, you know, that that's how he's going to basically train to be an assassin without having to train. <laughs> and he's just going to go through and, and take every, everything that uh, Ezio learned. And they explain that, you know, eventually, ideally, if you could control it, you could just tap into those memories at will, but I think I think Sean says something like, "But nobody's ever done that, you know, or nobody's ever been able to do that without going crazy." Yeah, he says like, "Unfortunately, but like, well, up until this point, nobody has," and, and like this is one of the first instances that Desmond has was able to do it. But I, it's the first time that he's yeah, it's, it's it. the first time and probably the only time because it, it seems like it took a really big mental toll on him. At least when, like, because he wakes up in the morning, he's very groggy, and, and Rebecca comes to wake him up. He, she even asks, like, "Hey, man, you all right? You doing okay? You don't look so good." No. And, and so, but that's another like, you know, midway point of present day stuff. And then we jump to the end when you've wait, completed wait, there, there all the other time. Stuff. There was another time in between when they stopped just to for him to take a break, right? Or was that the same time when they go to train? That's the same time when they go to train. Okay, okay. Because up until that point, you spent like the entire first half. I believe you get out of the animus to train and take a break once you complete everything that there is to do up until Forley. Because after that, you go into Venice. Yep. Yeah. So okay. then, then that's the whole. That's where the whole latter part of the game takes place. Yeah. Okay. So, so now we jump to the ending, where you completed everything in the animus. And you get out of the animus only to to learn that the Templars found the warehouse. 
and that everybody needs to kind of pack up and go because, you know, this is only a matter of time until they found them. And Sean even says, like, you know, I'm actually surprised it took them this long. But uh, Lucy and Desmond are then sent to go distract the guards and take care of them while Sean and Lucy finish packing everything up. And then Lucy kind of hands him, I'm assuming it's Ezio's hidden blade. Like, they manage to recover that artifact and they give it to him and he puts it on. Yeah. And this is then where the combat skills sort of start taking up, like, the, the combat effects or abilities from the bleeding effects start to manifest themselves in Desmond where he's able to take on the guards and dispatch them with Lucy. And then Warren Vidic comes back out trying to um, <clears throat> get them to come back to Abstergo by taking them by force or, or whatever the case. But they fight off all the guards and Warren's like, okay, you guys won this time, but don't worry, we'll be back, basically. And then that's basically endgame. So so we, uh, we, we weren't clear on this, but at the end of Assassin's Creed 1, the bleeding effect is absolutely working and he is able to tap into eagle vision right and that's that's how number one ends and how number two begins and then when he does the training we see that he's able to like he's got the movement abilities and then at the end he's got the combat abilities so what lucy proposed at the beginning of him becoming an assassin through the animus is is real like at this point he's again he's got the hidden blade and everything oh at the end i really wished that he could have taken one of those like sticks that the guards had and use it as a sword, but you couldn't. Uh, I know. I was really so you were limited in, in your weaponry. It would be cool if they just like gave him everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, here's all his armor and a sword and, you know, the daggers and everything. Uh, but yeah, but but it it's working, right? The Animus is not only allowing Desmond to to tap in and view, because he's not really viewing them, right? He's He's experiencing these past lives or, or the the lives of his ancestors but then he's absolutely taking on all of these abilities That's yeah cool <laughs> no yeah no it's the bleeding effect is probably one of the coolest concepts that they they've put into the games where all you need to do is just sit in this machine revisit your ancestors memories and by just by being in in that machine for x amount of time you start learning the things they learn now this is this is a lot like the matrix right where the matrix you you plug in you can just download information but here this is actually a much more realistic way uh as as far as sci-fi goes (laughs) which is that you would you would still have to go through some sort of learning process and you know and it's interesting because uh, you know, you, you're living Ezio's life and throughout the game, you know, we'll talk about this in a future episode, but but the game spans 22 years, I believe, maybe more, of Ezio's life, right? Is that correct? Um, I don't... Uh, I want to say maybe a little bit more because you technically see him as he's being born and then you go, but if you're talking about, <laughs> you're right. You're right. You do see when he's born, but so then, uh, so then you're going into like maybe 25 years total, even though there is a giant timeline. But if you're looking at from where he's like a te- like a teenager up until end game, then you're looking at, I think, I think he says at some point 
it was 10 years since the the death of his family. No, he says it's 22 years at that point. Uh, really? Hmm. Yeah. I might need to go back and look at that because I'm almost positive when he's sitting there on the bench on his birthday, he says it was, it's been 10 years since the death of his father and brothers. But there's a scene, the one I'm thinking about is a scene later on when he's addressing the crowd after the someone is being burned at the stake and he like does a mercy killing and he tells everybody 22 years ago i saw my family perish right here it's much later in the game that's the scene that i'm thinking about that's why it's like so it's it's around 25 years you think right yeah yeah okay yeah. Ooh, so somewhere you just there. talked you just talked about some dlc there bud did i oh well that's anyway, dlc so i didn't i didn't i don't know mm-hmm. so uh so it's a long period of time that you can play as Ezio through Desmond, but you don't actually live 25 years of his life. You're just jumping from memory to memory and you're jumping to these formative memories, which are the ones that allow him to, which are the moments when Ezio was learning. And those are the ones that Desmond is, is living so that he can take advantage of those as well. So that's a really cool way to do that. Like, yeah, like in a way, this is a big treasure hunt and it's an adventure, but at its core, it's also a learning experiment. It's like, what if we can just have you relive someone else learning something and then you learn it? Is that possible? And and in this world, it is. Just so cool. It's, I mean, like I said before, it's, it's definitely the coolest and, in my opinion, the best concept that they've introduced in, into, this, into this series. And it definitely as a great way to retcon a lot of things and how people suddenly know how to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. 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 It's, it's a cool element, right. That you can add, that you can add to a story. Yeah. Um, so speaking of story, I want to take a look at the, the, now the new characters that we have, uh, in terms of the present day, because before we just had Lucy and Warren Vidic, and even then we really didn't get a lot out of Lucy. We just got that little front that she was putting on for Abstergo. So now we have two new people. We have Sean and Rebecca, and yeah. I want to take a look at at these at these two guys. Uh, I just said people, and really take a look and, and see what their roles are in the Assassins. So why don't you take it away? Why don't you start off by? Uh, Telling me about Rebecca. So Rebecca Crane is our woman in the chair. And, and actually, so, so technically, one thing that is very different about this game versus the first one is that in this new Animus, which Rebecca Crane uh, created, and she calls Animus 2.0 or Baby, uh, by, she's like the woman in the chair, and so is Sean. So... As you're playing, there are less moments where you're leaving the animus and walking around like in the first one. And instead, they are talking to you about things that are happening throughout the game. So in this one, when we when we talked about how we were going to talk about how uh, just the present day stuff, it's interesting because in this game, the present day stuff overlaps a lot because even you even have situations where someone right has encoded information on top of the memories so even though you're playing the you know Ezio's memories now there are elements of the present 
on top of them. And then you hear Sean and Rebecca helping you out with information and reacting to things. So it's a very different experience where it also makes you like it reminds you more often that you are in the present. And and I love that about this this uh, this game and, and, you know, which is how, you know, the, the series when it starts moving in this direction. So, like I said, Rebecca Crane seems to be like an engineer, the techie. She created this new version of the Animus. When Lucy provides the memory core from the Abstergo Animus, she uh, installs it and she says, you know, I'm going to integrate the code so that we can read what's on it and, and, and combine it with what we're doing here. And she is the one right next to Desmond the whole time, monitoring him and, you know, giving him, like, new information throughout she is a she's an assassin they're all assassins she seems to have saved sean at some point that's the way they frame it where sean was like trying to start some trouble and uh rebecca uh found him and kind of recruited him is my understanding and so we don't get to see a lot of her but she seems to have some history with lucy she says at the beginning that we spent seven and it's been seven years since i saw you and yeah she's like this supportive character she is uh in your ear but also taking care of you she's the one i i think is she the one that wakes him i think she's the one that wakes up desmond when he falls asleep in the around the middle part of the game so she takes on kind of the role that lucy had in the first one where she's like right there uh in everything and I think that I think that's it for Rebecca Crane at the begin at the end she she packs up everything and I think she says something to Desmond like um, like here's the animus like I'm sure you'll want to play with it on the way to where where we're going which doesn't they don't say this explicitly but it seems like maybe there's a mobile version there's something that you know that she's providing him uh desmond to to play with animus wise for for the trip and and that's kind of that's the last thing she tells him and that's rebecca crane yeah wow seems like someone did their homework I always do. <laughs> I'm a great student. <laughs> and you're 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 earning points. You're earning points towards your your next rank. All right. Well, I yeah no. I, honestly, I I probably couldn't have even said it better myself in regards to Rebecca. Um, she's definitely one of the. I say she's more important than Sean, but Sean does have his uses, and he 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 has his own very important role. Uh, in turn, not only to the group but to the assassins as well, which I'll now get into. So Sean Hastings is the historian. A dick. He's a lovable dick. <laughs> 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 it's that that British charm is just you can't get enough of it. His sassy, sarcastic, little banter with everybody is what makes him so goddamn lovable. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, he's the historian. So when you're in the game and you come across all these historical sites, historical figures or of importance, um, he's there entering in uh, little data entries. So what you can do as the player, when you see it pop up on the screen as you're playing, you can hit the select button or the menu button or whatever button it is for whatever console or PC, then you can actually then read up an actual history of the person 
or the uh, building or, or the the city or whatever it is that pops up, you could actually take a little tidbit of, of information that's accurate, that's true about the location or, or whatever it is, which is great because this is where the education kind of comes into play in terms of the series. And Sean's the one who provides it. Now, like he mentioned, like what Josue here was mentioning earlier with these encoded uh, messages that are actually placed throughout the game, which we'll get into in the next episode. Sean is there. He, he's alongside Rebecca. And if you ever get stuck in terms of decoding these these messages, uh, if you're there, for, if you're stuck on a particular puzzle for a certain amount of time, uh, Sean can provide like a hint to kind of help you help you along, help you figure it out. Give you that little give you that little nudge. But as you were saying earlier with Rebecca saving Sean, that is right. That is correct because Sean, I believe, was in college when he came across this uh, weird thing of information or it was like a conspiracy theory or something regarding Abstergo. And Sean, being this expert historian and expert researcher, he actually dove really deep into it, got really deep into the conspiracies and uncovered a lot of information about Abstergo that the Templars did not want to be known. And of course, Sean, being the sarcastic and and asshole that he is, was uh, spreading this information to anyone who could hear it. And that's what caught, uh, that's how he got Abstergo's attention. And so then Rebecca came, saved his ass, and recruited him to the assassins. And Desmond, I, when you, in one of the interactions with Desmond, uh, Desmond even asked him, like, okay, well, why aren't you out there doing fieldwork? Just as a, as a curiosity question. He's like, you know, some of us are built for the fieldwork, and some of us aren't. Some of us are built to be back here uh, relaying information to the assassins. What Sean even said, he's like, you know, I'm a big, I'm a big person for the assassins. Like, I'm not just here with you guys. I'm also out providing information and relaying messages to all the other assassin groups out there. He's like, you know, the ones out there actually saving the world because he's sitting there taking a jab at Desmond because Desmond's not in the animus. He's sitting there chit-chatting with Sean. There isn't really too much to go into with Sean right now, um, but again, oh, he does say he does say to Desmond around that party. He says, you know, like, but don't don't get it wrong. I am a an assassin through and through. I have killed people. I just like prefer not to or choose not to. Like he he rather have this role that he has now than being out there killing people. Exactly. Like he he much prefers he gets his excitement from doing research and from finding out new information and and learning new things. When it comes to old dialogue or cryptic encoded messages, like like say something along the lines of like the Cicada 1066 group or whatever it was that was like a big thing. If that was something that happened in the Assassin universe, you bet your ass Sean would have already have everything completely decoded <laughs> because he's just he's just that deep and he's that brilliant, which is and, and he proves to be a very vital asset in terms of relaying information and, and helping things along whenever Desmond, Rebecca, or Lucy are stuck and they can't seem to figure out what something means. Yeah. Yeah. Um so that's really all there is to say about Sean right now. Um, mm-hmm. We definitely get a little bit more character development in, in later installments. But for now, I, I feel like that's a good enough coverage on the two new ones. Uh, 
And so now I want to take a second to uh, kind of give a little update, add a little addendum to the two old characters that we have, uh, Lucy and Desmond. Uh, so I'll, I'll go with Lucy here in that with Lucy, we now learn, I mean, we kind of learned it at the end of Assassin's Creed 1, that she was actually an assassin uh, working undercover at Abstergo to siphon information from them and, and relay it back to the assassins. And in Assassin's Creed 1, because she had to keep this facade up, she seemed very subordinate, seemed very, like, passive. But in this game, that attitude's completely gone. Now she's she's the leader. She's the one calling the shots. And, you know, she ain't taking shit from anybody. She's all about action and getting things done, which is which is great. It's a She turns from, like, a passive little sidekick to really stepping up and, and becoming uh, a strong a strong female character even if she's not really the protagonist she she does have a very strong presence and it's something that everybody in the group is looking up to um so it, it I mean I guess there really isn't a lot to really add in terms of Lucy just yet other than her whole demeanor and character has shifted from being just a sidekick to Warren to now being a very aggressive and, and dominant uh, figure in the assassins and more specifically uh, in their little group. Yeah. We don't know like if she, what, what kind of position she holds in the assassins order uh, as a whole, but definitely she's the leader of this group. No doubt. There was and- a part where she was talking to Desmond and she was, um, they were having a conversation and she seemed to feel really bad about the death of subject 16. And Desmond was kind of consoling her and telling her that, that it wasn't her fault. So I think there's, there's definitely way more of that in this game, right? That, that she seems to feel guilty about, about what happened. And, you know, she doesn't want the same thing to happen to, to Desmond. Yeah, no, she yeah, she seems to take on a lot of guilt or I should say she feels a lot of guilt for the past subjects um prior to Desmond and and their death. Like she feels uh, responsible for them because she was there for the majority of those test subjects and she did nothing despite knowing that these were pretty much fellow assassins. And she had to go along with this thing in because it's it was about the mission. And so for for Desmond, correct, she, she's being very cautious, she's being very careful and being very, like, uh, being very cautious, being very careful and, and making sure that he doesn't get too much exposure to the Animus and that he doesn't uh, suffer the effects that Subject 16 suffered that ultimately ended up costing him his life. Yeah. I mean, and she did that in the first game too, to be fair. That's not like a totally new thing. She was always advocating for for his health. But she, she does say here at one point, like, no, like, you know, like they left him in there for days at a time and we're not going to do that with you. Yeah, it's it's a lot more... Um, like personal? Yeah, it's personal. It, it, they really drive that point home that she's being very cautious. Um. So, so going on from that, we're, you know, just transitioning over to Desmond. Um, this is where we see Desmond started to take a stand for himself 
in that in the very beginning of Assassin's Creed 1 and pretty much throughout the entire game, he seemed to have been denying his assassin's heritage. He was um, very reluctant to, to buy into everything, to really embrace it. And in this game, after knowing everything Abstergo's done, after seeing what he saw in the Animus, and realizing that the the conflict and the threat that was uh, basically drilled in his head since the day he was born is actually real, he's a lot more willing now to to join in with the assassins and and look for a way to stop Abstergo and stop the Templars from achieving their their goal of of world domination basically so we're really seeing desmond switch from this captive role to now being like now really stepping up and being a team player and and willing to go through the the risks of being in the animus to just so that he can learn to fight so he can learn to actually be a soldier for the assassins which is really really cool and it's something that just continues to build, and you, and you really see Desmond start to mature as he gains more knowledge, especially going from the beginning of Assassin's Creed 2 to even the middle of it. You see, as he's retaining this information, he's he's asking these questions, and he's learning these. He's learning little clues that are helping him out in in regards to. Uh, what should I say? The, the, the f- He's learning new things in regards to figuring out stuff that may not seem all too clear to Ezio. But to them, they're like, okay, no, I know where this goes or I know how to do this. Or, or in terms of solving Subject 16 stuff and learning to piece that together, uh, you really see his character mature. Because in, in the beginning, he seems to act like a child that's learning that it's not all you know sunshine and and rainbows to be your own to do whatever you want with and and think that there's no consequences and then now he's transitioning into that more adult like phase where he's like okay well i need to step up i need to do my part in this because there's something going on that's much bigger than myself and the one last little thing in regards to Desmond is that it seems like he has a much, much, much bigger role than just the Assassins and the Templars. Uh, he seems to have this bigger role for himself. like, it, And it wasn't even determined by him. It was determined by the ones who came before. Can we? Are we going to talk about that? We're gonna only. I'm gonna. It's gonna be a nice little tease here. It's gonna be oh. a nice little tease. A nice little tease because he, when we do finally see them for the very first time at the very end of the game, instead of talking to Ezio, who's there, actually with the with the hologram, they're talking to Desmond. So so yeah yeah so so to to be clear right there's there's um towards the end of the game you you finally find a way to communicate or you get a message from the ones who came before. Right. And, and yeah. And so when Ezio's there, ah, this, this is what I love about this game. This is one of those amazing moments, right? Where it's, you are playing as Desmond who is playing as Ezio. 
right? And Ezio finds this thing and this hologram starts talking to him. And the hologram says, I'm not talking to you. And it's like, she's looking away, right? She's looking away. And, and he's like, and Ezio's like, what is happening? It's like, no, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking through you. I'm delivering a message, right? And then she says, uh, message has been delivered. Like, and it's like, thank you, Desmond. <laughs> Mind blown. <laughs> Desmond's like, what the fuck? This, I mean, these games are so, like, the way that that is written, right? It's like th- the first game ended with the bleeding effect appearing. You're like, what? What just happened? And then, like, the game ends right there, the first one. And this one, that's basically the end, right? The screen, she's like, thank you, Desmond. The screen goes black. He's like, what the fuck? And then the stuff we talked about, about them escaping their lab, plays through the credits. Like, basically, the mic drop moment was before. And, and yeah, I guess we can talk about what they say later. But, but that, that's why in this game, it's, again, it, the, the past and the present is, way more integrated it's blended if you will right because that is an experience that Ezio had but Ezio had an experience where Desmond was alluded to right he's alluded to as being this prophet apparently and and we don't know what that means because that's that's where the game ends oh it's so good so good I know it, it they they did a really good job of learning to blend the two the two timelines to yeah. to make them all interconnected, like it's not just two separate things that Desmond's just sitting there learning. No, it actually relates to what's going on with him right now. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, ah, oh, so cool. That is like the, the the coolest moment in the entire game. Well, actually, sort it's of. one of the coolest. It's uh, is it okay? I I'm gonna say it's still the coolest. I'm going to say it's, it's incredible. Uh, it's, oh, it's so good. Just having that experience the first time was like, oh, oh, so good. So good. And so, so uh, a few things. I feel like we were only at this place, like the whole game takes place over the course of two days. Does that seem about right? Yeah, about, yeah, about two, three. No, what? actually, I think. I think in regards to how long it takes for them getting to the warehouse and upstairs go finding them, I think it's like a week or two. Hmm. But like okay. you don't really like, but like all like the sleeping stuff and, and all that stuff or, or, or things like that is not really important. So I don't think they really show that. Well, I don't know. Cause it feels like he only, yeah. Right. I mean, it he only feels... sleeps one night. And right? I know it, it, it does feel like that, but I, 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 I might have to go back and, and, and look this up and I might have to add this to our little forums here when I when I figure out the information. But I'm pretty sure I think it's like a week or two, but I could be very, very, very wrong. And okay. you're right. It could probably only be a couple of days, but I'll need to double check my 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 literary resources and get back to you on that. Yeah. OK. OK. Yeah, because because it doesn't it's definitely not very long, but it's, I think, I don't know. I think that's important because like a lot is happening over the course of a very short time. Do you know what year it takes place in? The present day? Mm-hmm. 2012. 2012. Okay. So technically both games are in 2012. 
Yes. Uh, we don't see it progress out of 2012 until after Assassin's Creed 3. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. Which is which is cool because the first game came out in 2007. So they were playing like they were, you know, they were in the future. But by the time Assassin's Creed 3 came out, what, what year was it? Mm-hmm. I think it was roughly around... Tw- I, I mean, I, I think... I need to double check this, but I'm almost positive it was 2012. Probably, right? Because one game it, per it year... Seems like it it yeah. seems like it, and plus, like, with the trope that they play on, it, it, that's, it seems likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so good. So good. Okay, so so I think I think that's pretty much it for the for the present day stuff, right? Yeah. All right, so I feel like this is since we've covered everything that we can really talk about in terms of the present day stuff for Assassin's Creed 2, I think we've wrapped up this this part of the codex. I think it's safe to say that uh class will be dismissed right now. So, Thank you, everybody, for joining us in this amazing lesson as we are going to be diving into the Ezio Trilogy stuff. It's really great, really amazing. You guys are probably going to all go through like three notebooks by the time we're done with this. But again, you know, next episode, we're going to really dive into the core gameplay stuff as well as take a look at all the characters for the past. So Ezio, uh, Rodrigo, all that good jazz. So please... Come to the next class. You're not going to want to miss it. So should you ever seek assistance, feel free to reach out to us at forum.geektherapy.com. And if you would like to chit-chat with your other fellow initiates, you can do so over on our Discord at geektherapy.com Discord. So again, thank you for coming to class, everybody. Tune in next time. And remember, nothing is true. Everything is permitted. <laughs>